That's just an example, and there's many other examples. There is then no person or soul or spirit that has been created independently of the body and then placed in the body, or perhaps in the wrong body. So we, we finished there last time. What I want to, another kind of biblical principle I want to talk about is how gender congruity, you know, having you know, this congruity between your sense of self and your body, um, and how that's an re- important reflection of Christ and the church. This is another thing that uh, you know, biblical scholars have pointed to as why it's so important to maintain uh, the biblical position on you know, male and female. So Ephesians 5, you remember, Paul, he's talking about marriage. We're, we're, gonna, we're actually in Ephesians 5 in our sermon series. We'll get to the marriage passage, I think, one. Um, eventually. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to what? To Christ and the church. And so um, you see there that the male and female distinction from creation is fundamental in contributing to a picture of the gospel and even to the meaning and purpose of life. So it's not just a product of, of, you know, a backwards sort of ancient thinking uh, philosophy or religion. It's, this is part of the story of the world. This is where the world is heading, this, this beautiful marriage between Christ and his church and his redeemed people. So, you know, one person coming at this, on this says that Paul is saying that the distinction between male and female reflects the distinction between God and humanity. And the coming together of male and female in deep union in marriage is a reflection of God's desire for us to be united to him, which has now been made possible through Christ. Christ's church is his bride. And this picture of Christ and his bride as the church only works because of the difference between the sexes. Two men or two women can't reflect the marriage of Christ and his church. The image requires the union of two distinct and different but complementary others. So that's just to say, that's just another reason why this, what's at stake uh, when we're kind of maintaining a biblical position on um, gender dysphoria. Another thing to think about in terms of the biblical position on this is the idea of contentment, the idea of sort of receiving what God has given us, the Bible talks a lot about. 1 Corinthians 6, we've mentioned that passage several times in this class. It's, it's one of the places where Paul talks about sexual immorality the most. And Corinth, they, that was a, a crazy culture in terms of the, the sexual immorality there. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, honor God with your body. Um, and that has to include the meaning of with it, the meaning of embracing the body God has given you, the gender that God has given you. Um, Very prominent thought in that day was uh, uh, an ideology called Gnosticism, which I'm sure you've heard of. And so this idea today of the real me being trapped inside the wrong body is sort of this elevation of psychology over biology. And um, that's Gnosticism. And the Bible, in many places, not just Paul, um, speaks directly against that thought um, and, and, and calls us as believers to um, live into this reality of being embodied souls and embrace the body we've been given. In 1 Timothy 4, 
Um, it's talking about some of these things. <clears throat> and um, Paul is speaking against people who make extra laws. He's speaking against legalism that was still apparent in the church. He's talking about people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then verse 4 in 1 Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It's just another place where we see uh, a biblical call to embrace who, who we've been made to be. Um, it is good how, the way God has created us. In our cult, obviously there's brokenness, and we'll talk more about that. Um, and the, and the, it's, it's not so simple, but um, that is the ultimate biblical call. And in our culture, when there's incongruence between the mind and the body, the mind now wins. And the Bible uh, would say the opposite. According to the Bible, the body should win. Uh, Sam Albury, who's given a lot of thought on these things, he's a Christian man who struggles with same-sex attraction, uh, but is committed to um, you know, what we believe the Bible says uh, on these things. He's given a lot of thought in some of these areas. He's, he tweeted a couple years ago, Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. So I, had a, I was going to have that up on the PowerPoint. Um, then I was going to have this quote from Nancy Piercy in this book that I mentioned last time as a really helpful resource on these things. She says, Why is it considered acceptable to carve up a person's body to match their inner sense of self, but then at the same time bigoted to help them change their sense of self to match their body? Feelings can change, but the body is an observable fact that does not change. It makes sense to treat it as a reliable marker of sexual identity. And she gives many anecdotes in this book of even some people she's been in relationship with struggling with gender dysphoria um, and, <clears throat> and examples of people who've um, processed it long enough to eventually um, come to a place of accepting who, they, who God has made them to be. Not that they don't still struggle in different ways, <clears throat> Um, but that's a really helpful section in her book. So continuing on, talking about sort of biblical principles in all of this. We've, we've talked about contentment. We've talked about the importance of maintaining the, the, the Christ, the church being the bride of Christ. Another thing to talk about when, when looking at the biblical position is to remember the reality of eunuchs in the Bible. Matthew 19, uh, Jesus is talking about marriage, but then he starts, he has this little aside on eunuchs. He says in Matthew 19, 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus is talking about three different kinds of eunuchs there. Ones that are born that way, born without the ability to procreate. That may include, you know, intersex, which we talked about last time. Um, but it, it could just be someone who 
um, is not able to procreate just at, at, at simplest. So three different type of eunuchs, born that way, made that way. You probably maybe have heard of just how prominent it was in that day for kings especially to castrate um, any men who might be dealing with, their, with the queen and, and cl- working close to the queen. Uh, it was a very common thing to do, and there were other ways that um, men would be made eunuchs. And then um, he says, thirdly, and those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, those who, uh, basically as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, um, embrace singleness as a way to please the Lord and to be dedicated to the Lord. And remember, the wider context of that passage, he's talking about marriage, um, where he's reminded someone who questioned him of the Genesis 1 framework that were created male and female in God's image. And so he's just reaffirmed the, the gender binary in Genesis 1 right before he's talked about eunuchs. And it's also important to recognize that whenever the Bible actually mentions eunuchs, um, it refers to them with a, uh, a male pronoun. Um, it refers to them as male. They're not a third sex. So that's just a couple thoughts from what the Bible says about eunuchs. And we'll actually talk about one other thing the Bible says about eunuchs when we get more practical. There's a limited number of passages that deal directly with transgender. Uh, one of them is Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. This passage says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And so it, it condemns gender-bending or cross-dressing in, in strongest terms, that the Lord detests any such person. But I want to give a little bit of context to that because I don't want to, that's, that's a verse that would be very easy to become a Bible thumper with. Like, here's this verse. But I want us to not be Bible thumpers. I want us to be Bible therapists. I want us to use God's word to heal people, not to um, condemn them. Although there is a sense in which we do that because the Bible, the, the gospel does draw a straight, a, a straight line. And, and, but I, I think you know what I mean by that. So why does it have this verse on, on cross-dressing in Deuteronomy? Maybe some think there might be a link to like some pagan religious practices that it's specifically speaking to. That's possible, but there's nothing in the immediate context um, in that part of Deuteronomy that would suggest any connection like that. Um, it's more likely then that the wording of that uh, command goes beyond a cult setting to include any and all circumstances of men dressing like women and vice versa, because it infringes on the natural order of creation which divided humanity into male and female. That distinction was fundamental to human existence and could not be blurred in any way. That's why the Lord would regard such a thing as an abomination. Nevertheless, uh, Dan Doriani, one Christian thinker, has helped me see, we have to also recognize that, you know, okay, what is uh, a male way of dressing and what is a female way of dressing? Uh, Sometimes it can be just, we can think of it in such black and white terms, we have to have some nuance. Dan Doriani, he says, because of sin, each society expresses gender in harmful ways, and because of common grace, each society expresses gender in helpful ways. Gender is grounded both in biology, the created order, and also in culture. 
Therefore, some aspects of gender are objective physical realities, and some aspects are socially constructed. We need to have that kind of nuance. So some stereotypes for boys and girls are unhelpful and often hurtful, and the church can sometimes adopt them. Doriani, he says, we do everyone a favor if we recognize that many cultural norms are just that, cultural and not biblical. And someone else reminded me of Jacob and Esau. Think of Jacob and Esau. They could not have been more different. Esau was, you know, your man's man. He was out hunting, um, and he was outside all day. And what did Jacob do? He was inside with his mother, cooking. Um, and he was, you know, he was a mama's boy. And, um, you know, it's not a, it's, you can't draw, you know, a super ton out of just that, that example, but it's, it's an example, uh, even in the Bible, of two uh, men who are very much men, but expressing that in different ways. Uh, you think of King David. He was a brave warrior, but he was also very artistic and very sensitive person. And sometimes, um, you know, norms of what, what a man is or isn't aren't always actually biblical. But Doriani f- finishes, that said, at the same time, we distinguish roles and clothes. It's normal for boys to act like their fathers and for girls to act like their mothers. It's also good for men and women to signal by their appearance and actions that they are indeed male or female, understanding that various cultures have varying signals. So maybe some of you parents in here have had questions from your kids, you know, why why can't boys wear this, or why can't girls or girls wear that? And of course, there's nuance there. I mean, in a sense, you could say boys wear dresses in Scotland with with kilts. Um, but um, but I think that the principle there is uh, it is good for for boys and whatever culture they're in to to show by the way they dress that they are boys um, and not girls. Any questions? I'm going to go ahead and risk that because I don't care. I want to hear your questions or your thoughts or comments. Yes, David. At what center? I didn't hear that. Do you have any initial thoughts on that? Yeah. Again, yeah, I think a lot of it is you got to, like I said, like um, what men wear, at least historically in Scotland, has, there's different, you know, norms than, than here. And so, yeah, of course there needs to be nuance and, and, um, and understanding. And, and yeah, it's, it actually is, uh, 
um, getting, uh, you use the word androgynous. It is, yeah, that's, that is a reality. I affirm that reality. Um, I think I would also say there are still um, certain ways of dressing that are very clearly still. Um, and so that's, that's, yeah, I think each, each family needs to um, ultimately, you know, uh, uh, think, think through, and go with their conscience, but, um, but also it could be wise to, to talk to, if you're having struggles that in your home, to maybe talk to your elder, talk to others in the church and, and get wisdom from others on, hey, this isn't uh, something we're struggling with in our home. Um, what is biblical wisdom here? Um, and yeah, and having an, a, a willingness, especially in the church, to, to um, kind of have this sense of, of uh, what is the cultural norm. And what, as long as the, the desire is to still, um, you know, signal uh, by, by their appearance and actions that they are indeed male or female. Oh, that's a good question. Any other questions? We're almost out of time, unfortunately. I've still got quite a bit left, so we will definitely probably spend all of next time talking about this, which is a good thing. I want to I wanna work our way slowly through all these important things. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 is the other passage that would, we could say speaks um, in a more direct way of transgenderism. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I mentioned this passage, I think, two weeks ago. Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or, or adulterers or men who have sex with men. Um, and I, I pointed out a couple weeks ago that that phrase, men who have sex with men, is translating two different uh, Greek words, one for, um, you know, a, a homosexual man who's um, kind of the active person in the homosexual sex, and, and then a homosexual man who's the passive. And so that, that, that word that's describing the passive male in that is, is this sense of an effeminate male, and so it's, um, it's speaking against that, uh, which, you know, there's a principle there of kind of just acting in a way that's not your gender. And so that's, that's another specific text that speaks to this. So that's kind of has now walked through a position. We're going to now talk, I won't, I'll you know, very briefly be able to start, but we're going to talk more about posture. Okay, we have, we, this is what we think the Bible teaches. This is the position we hold in the world. All right, how do we take that in a, in a posture that is the posture the Bible would want us to take it in? So that's the transition I'm making now, talking from position now to posture. I think the first thing we need to do in thinking about our posture on um, things like homosexuality and transgenderism is to first do triage um, of, of who, who's right in front of us, who is the person in front of us. There's this great quote from a guy I read who said, you know, I, I'm going to butcher it, but it's, you know, um, every... He's talking about transgenderism. Every transgenderism story is unique. There's, there's just a lot of differences between each of their stories, and we need to really think about the person in front of us as well. There's ways we need to speak into this as a whole and, and in general terms, for sure, as Christians. But we also, especially in, as we're thinking about how we move towards those in these spaces, we need to have triage. And in, in one sense of that is, is to know, all right, are we dealing with a believer here? Um, or are we dealing with an unbeliever here? Because there's going to be 
a lot of differences between how you approach them, uh, how approach a believer who's maybe struggling in this area, uh, or maybe it's a believer who has a less traditional take on the Bible, and so then that's going to be a little bit different conversation, um, or an unbeliever who kind of champions these things. There, there's different approaches depending on what space we're inhabiting. But to all of them, in all of those spaces, uh, we need to have grace and truth. We need to be doves with snake brains. As Jesus says, you know, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to have the, the warmth of a dove, but the brain, the, the, the tact, the, the sharpness of a snake, um, to use Jesus' illustration. So then I was going to walk through, okay, all right, let's talk about grace and truth towards a believer. And I have some thoughts, and then grace and truth towards an unbeliever, and we will get to that next time. So, um, let's pray. Father, um, we thank you uh, for how your Bible helps us think through um, the simplest and yet most complex issues, um, maybe not always in the clarity that we want, um, but it is sufficient. Your word is sufficient enough to, to lead us to salvation, to lead anyone in this world to salvation. Um, and so we take that truth with us, and we embrace that idea and uh, we, we long to be a light in the world, Lord. Um, we long to be a convicted people that um, does not sway from your truth, but also a compassionate people that loves people well with the truth. Um, we need help with this. We pray that you continue to help us with that. Even in this class, help us as we continue forward to, to find um, that balance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you at the service.